Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Jerry's over there. Their finger on the button. And this is Stuff You Should Know. Not the button. Well, it's a button. She doesn't have the nuclear suitcase. It's the button as far as we're concerned. (laughs) That's our nuclear suitcase. Yeah, because we're dropping bombs every time we uh, drop an episode. That's right. How are you feeling? Pretty good? I am. I'm a little little apprehensive about this one. How come? Well, I've been avoiding this one for years because my... uh, one of my very best friends died from complications of MS. Oh, man. Just last year. You uh, failed to tell me that when I sent this one over your way as a suggestion. <laughs> well, you'd sent it before before he died, and I didn't think I could do it. And I just kind of feel like now's the time, you know? Okay. And weirdly, well, yesterday was his birthday. and No. Uh, would have been his birthday, and you did not know that and had sent it over. And it was just kind of one of those eerie things where I was like, all right, this is yeah. this has got to happen. What's your friend's name? Billy. Well, this one's for Billy. Yeah, and this will be, he'll, I'll pepper his story throughout this. It's very sad stuff. Man, well, I'm right here with you, man. Thank you. Just lean on me when you need it. <laughs> I appreciate it. Okay. Uh, so we are talking multiple sclerosis, or MS, as it's called. Um, and I knew very little about this. I guess you probably are a lot more familiar with it than I am then, huh? Yeah, I mean... Uh, Obviously, personally, uh, his journey with it, but as we will see, um, everyone's journey with MS is different. It Mm -hmm. is, um, depending on what kind you have and depending on you as an individual, it can progress in different ways, uh, very slowly, very quickly. It can be devastating. It can be not, it can be very manageable. Um, he, he had one of the worst kinds, so. Yeah. Uh, From what I understand, it's very, fairly rare for someone to die from, complications of ms right yeah i mean i don't know if rare is the word but it's definitely not the the common uh outcome gotcha somewhere so, between rare and common i think <laughs> i gotcha but it's already a fairly rare disease i think something like four hundred thousand people in the united states and i think two million worldwide have it which i mean it's a substantial number of people but in the context of the larger global and national population that's not that many. It is rare, I would guess. Yeah, it's um, just a little bit of an overview, I guess. Um, they call it the prime of life disease. Uh, and it's very cruel in that way because um, it most often strikes people between 20 and 50, but I think even usually in, in your like 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's in, when Billy was hit with it. And um, it's, uh, I think, more women than men get it. Yeah, by far. Because it's an autoimmune disease, and more women get autoimmune diseases more, which I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, more Caucasians get it, and apparently Caucasians of Northern European descent are more likely to get it. And it's really, there's a lot of mystery about why people get this. Yeah, like, for example, why Caucasian people more than um, people with darker skin? Um, or uh, also, I think, part of the same coin why people who live, you know, away from the equator more than people who live in the tropics. Yeah. That suggests that the sun might have something to do with it. Or I think one of the things that they've been looking into lately is vitamin D, which you produce through exposure to the sun. 
Yeah, it's really um, a mystery in a lot of ways. Um, some people have uh, have brought up the idea that there are clusters of areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people have said, you know, that's not the case. Uh, clusters are BS. Um, you're reading, you know, you're you're reverse engineering a uh, yeah. Uh, what do you call it? A cause, I guess. Stop bringing up clusters. <laughs> yeah, that's what they basically. say. Uh, environmental or um, whether it's environmental or hereditary. Well, environmental people don't know for sure. That would that would suggest that clusters could exist, right? But the fact that they're not sure if it is environmental or not, I would think that leaves that cluster thing open to debate. Yeah, but uh, whether or not you can, it's hereditary. It's up for debate too, mm-hmm. because I think it says. Uh, the risk for people with parents, siblings, or children who are diagnosed is between 1 in 20 and 1 in 40, whereas it's, what, 1 in 750 for the general population. Right. Um, it's obviously got something to do with uh, heredity. but or, or it could be that you tend to live with your parents and your siblings, so you would share the same environment yeah. as them, too. So There's a lot of mystery surrounding the underlying causes. There really is, and so much so that they don't even know what is going on well, they do know generally what's going on on the biological level, but not specifically, right? Yeah. So multiple sclerosis is, like you said, it's an autoimmune disease where your body's immune system attacks your own body. So there's a number of different ones, like there's Crohn's disease is one, um, there's uh, inflammatory bowel syndrome, and they all have in common that the body is mistaking or the immune system is mistaking some part of some normal natural part of the body as a foreign invader and is attacking it as such. And in the case of multiple sclerosis, uh, the body is mistaking what's called the myelin sheath, this fatty substance that protects the axons that, um, neurons that nerve cells communicate between. Yeah. Um, they attack that sheath. And as they attack that sheath, they start to break it down, and a uh, basically what amounts to scar tissue and a type of plaque starts to develop, and those form lesions, and it can happen anywhere on your brain or your central nervous system. And yeah, that's that's essentially what multiple sclerosis is. Yeah, those plaques, um, those are that's called a sclerosis. So literally, multiple sclerosis means you have multiple plaques, uh, this, this hardened tissue. It places on your body mm-hmm. uh, and like you said you know you have you, the neurons which are the nerve cells themselves and the axons are the fibers that connect everything wrapped in that sheath and that sheath it's really it's very basic and cruel how it acts you know any autoimmune disease is just devastating because uh, there's just something about the body making a mistake and turning on its uh, on an otherwise healthy self that's mm-hmm. just uh, I don't know it's hard to hard to wrap your head around it it really is um and one of the reasons why it's so tragic is because we have really no idea how to make the body stop doing that and in the case of multiple sclerosis you you have a body that's attacking the myelin sheath but researchers aren't quite sure exactly what part of the myelin sheath is triggering the attack right so they can't tailor drugs to stop the body from doing that they just know it's going after myelin yeah and the myelin can repair itself if there's damage Mm -hmm. but um the problem with ms is this they call it demyelinization it's happening too too fast basically right uh and sometimes it can be so severe that that those nerve fibers are severed outright 
Right, exactly. It's kind of like if you clear cut a forest, and then before you let the forest come back, you start cutting down saplings, it's never going to come back. Same yeah. thing with the myelin sheath. Um, it is difficult to diagnose at first um, because the early signs are things like, you know, maybe a little dizzy, I may be fatigued, um, maybe my vision is blurry occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of comes and goes to where people, you know, think like, oh, maybe it's migraines, maybe it's some, you know, something minor. And um, because it is not the most common thing, I don't think doctors immediately are like, well, we need to get you in for a spinal tap. Right. And, and because it doesn't necessarily follow um, a, a strict set of symptoms, you yeah. know, you can get those lesions anywhere. And, and since their nerve, um, the, they're disrupting or affecting the nerve signals, they can present in all sorts of different ways. Right. So, yeah, doctors are frequently stumped when you present with MS symptoms. Should we take a break and talk a little bit about the history and then get back into it? Oh, yeah, sure. All right. Let's do it. So, historically, MS, um, although it is new on the described disease front, um, obviously it's been around for a long time and people just didn't know what the heck was going on. Yeah. There's a saint that had it, they think. Yeah. Back in the Middle Ages, Saint Lidwina, who's Dutch. And because she was Dutch, she was ice skating once back in uh, the 14... The 15th century? Yeah, 1430s. She was ice skating and she fell. And after she fell, she developed um, excruciating pain, uh, headaches, trouble walking, paralysis. Um, and apparently there would be periods where she didn't have these symptoms. And then they would come back and it would get worse. And then she would not have them again, which are hallmarks of multiple sclerosis, as we'll see. Yeah, these f- attacks or flare-ups followed by periods of remission. Um, yeah, that's a specific type of MS. Well, yeah, which we'll get to that. But um, King George III apparently had a grandson who had a very extensive diary about his health mm-hmm. uh, until he died in 1848. And most people think like he clearly had MS. Um, and I believe that uh, it's a couple of decades after that that um, a doctor, Jean-Martin Charcot, uh, became the first person, at least that got credit, with with describing the disease itself, um, mm-hmm. identifying it and describing it. He's known as the father of modern neurology. He's popped up in some of our other stuff, too. He sounded familiar. Yeah. Because he had a, a woman, uh, a patient, that um, had these symptoms. Uh, she eventually died. He dissected her brain, discovered right. these lesions, and called it uh, sclerose en plaque. Nice French. Uh, thanks. And then the the myelin was um, was discovered after that, uh, but they didn't uh, they didn't put two and two together at the time with the myelin. But it was discovered after that, right? So the the plaques and the effect on the myelin um, was really first discovered or demonstrated by uh, a Scottish doctor James Dawson, who thanks to um, better microscopes than previous researchers had had, he could see oh yeah these. Lines of communication between nerve cells and brain cells are basically being worn down to nothing and in some cases broken. 
And um, this is the basis of MS. I'm James Dawson. Good night. Yeah, we should do one on the microscope. Sure. Because it seems like time and time again we've had like just literally because the uh, being able to see things smaller has gotten more advanced. Like every time that has taken a leap forward, medical science has. Oh, sure. It's really interesting. Plus, we'll get to say Anton von Leeuwenhoek <laughs> a bunch. Yeah, we've talked about him before, right? Yeah. So Dawson uh, described an inflammation, but they thought it was like a virus or a toxin running through the bloodstream at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, they did for a long time, actually. Well, yeah, and ironically, in the 30s, um, there were lab mice going, hey, it's autoimmune. Right. <laughs> and doctors were like, oh, don't listen to the, the lab results from the silly mice. No, it's clearly a blood toxin that's doing this. Yeah, so they sort of were not looking at the evidence right in front of their faces for a little while until the 1940s, uh, when I think at Columbia University, they found that um, these weird protein byproducts in their in their cerebrospinal fluid, and that was 1947, and that's kind of when... That's kind of when the doors really opened and they said, oh, I think we know what's going on and I think we know how we can test for this. Right, right. That established one of the big tests for for um, MS, which is they're looking for, so they go do a, a spinal tap, right, mm-hmm. which is where they draw a sample of um, cerebrospinal fluid from between your vertebra. Um, and when they're testing for MS, they're looking for high... Uh, levels of uh, IgG, immunoglobin G antibodies, and something called uh, oglioclonal bands, which are another type of protein that are immunoglobins. And then they're also looking for these protein byproducts that are the result of myelin being broken down in the cerebrospinal fluid, which is not supposed to happen. So when they find all this stuff, they can say, this is probably multiple sclerosis. And since the 40s, they've, they've had that test. And then uh, starting in about the 80s or 90s, they also introduced uh, MRI. And when you compare those two things together, and they both suggest MS, you've got a pretty good MS diagnosis. Yeah, but it, like, you know, like I said, it's a slow process. I remember, Billy, it took a while until they finally landed on MS for him. And that just kind of seems to be the way it goes. Um, what what were his initial symptoms? Do you do you remember? You know, like we didn't. He was a college roommate, and we didn't. Um, he ended up moving to the. Billy was. Uh, <laughs> he was a very unique guy. He he lived life to the fullest and did not really follow the rules of uh, modern man. <laughs> Where did he move? He kind of dropped out. He went to uh, Boone, North Carolina. Oh, nice! Which is a great place to drop out. Sure. And lived in a one room shack-like cabin in the middle of the woods. It's a great place to do that. With a, uh, a toilet just sort of in the room. A toilet or a bucket? <laughs> no, it was a toilet. Okay. It had running water and electricity. Oh, okay. But it was a one-room thing, and I, I went up there a few times and stayed with them. But um, we would, like, you know, drink whiskey and shoot guns. and it was Cross like, streams on the toilet in the <laughs> probably, middle of the room? Probably so. Like Ghostbusters? So Billy kind of dropped out, and um, this was before MS. You know, he just did that. You know, as a he was a, like a, a river guide, a whitewater river guide. Oh, cool! And and lived the life that those dudes live, uh, which is to say, not being responsible for a lot and kind of uh, spending uh, a lot of time on the river. Yeah, spending a lot of time on the river and hanging out. Um, so he dropped out and you know didn't have a phone. This was pre cell phone, so we weren't in the best touch. This is when I was post college, living in New Jersey. 
So the the memories of his exact early diagnosis are a little foggy, but I think I remember like fogginess and uh, dizziness kind of being his first warning signs. Gotcha. But he wasn't the kind to like, oh, well, you know, I need to run right out to the doctor and sure, see what's going on. It's not the river guide way. <laughs> no, and it certainly wasn't the Billy way. So he... You know, he didn't do himself any favors in the early years. And then when he finally did find out, he didn't do himself any favors because he didn't take care of himself and he didn't rehab and take his medication like he should have and sort of uh, fell down into a spiral of alcohol and drug abuse, oh. and um, which did not help. Like, you know, they, they say if you get a diagnosis, you want to you wanna live as clean as you can and work out and be as physical as you can and really try and take care of your body to stave off these physical symptoms. Yeah. And he yeah. didn't do any of that stuff. And, and plus the early thing is a really big part of it too, because yeah. again, what's happening is the myelin sheaths around your entire central nervous system are subject to attack. And so if you can catch this early, you can kind of stave off some of those successive attacks where if you just ignore it or don't pay attention to it, it, it will just get worse and worse and worse. It's a, it's what's called a devastating progressive disease. Yeah, and there's, you know, a lot of people keep it a secret at first because it can, um, some of the, the physical side effects can be embarrassing. I know that this article mentioned Annette Funicello waited for years to come out, uh, you know, former Disney Mouseketeer, and she didn't come out until I think there were reports that she was an alcoholic because they see her stumbling around. Right. Uh, and it can be confused with things like that publicly, and, um, and then she said, actually, tabloids, I have MS. Yeah, how and bad do you feel? tabloids were like, oh, <laughs> sorry, Annette. Uh, and the same with Richard Pryor. He kept his MS diagnosis a secret for a little while. Yeah, I remember everybody was like, Richard Pryor's got tremors because he used to freebase. Yeah. And, nope, turned out MS. Yeah, totally. I mean, Muhammad Ali didn't have MS, but I remember people, when Ali's condition got worse, were like, oh, yeah, the, you know, see, that's what happens with boxing. Well, I think they might be right about that one. Oh, was his yeah, brought on he, by boxing? Yeah, I think he had brain plaques from oh. too many con- from uh, CTE. Uh, okay, for some but, reason I thought. I I mean I could be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure that's why he uh, he had. I thought he had Parkinson's. I think it was brought on by all the punches he took. Oh, I think. Yeah, I didn't research any of this, so I'm speaking off the cuff. Same here. All right. It's, it's what we do best. <laughs> <laughs> well, at any rate, um, people can kind of keep it a secret for a little while because it can be a diagnosis can be scary at first when you get diagnosed with MS because of the unpredictability. And you sort of have to, I remember with Billy, they were kind of like, we got to kind of see how this goes mm-hmm. before we know what kind you have. Right. Which is fairly primitive as far as medicine goes. So Chuck, there's, um, there's, this article has four kinds. What I saw is that it's been pared down to basically two. Oh, yeah? Yeah, our article says that there's progressive relapsing, relapsing, remitting. Um, there is primary progressive and then secondary progressive. And basically what I saw is that um, there's an umbrella group called um, remitting or relapsing uh, multiple sclerosis, RMS. And then there's another kind that is... Um, Sorry, it's relapsing multiple sclerosis. Then the other kind is called primary progressive, right? And with relapsing MS, you are, you have MS symptoms. You have basically what amounts to an attack, right? Where your symptoms come on. Yeah. 
And then they subside after a while. And during the time that they subside, you're in what's called um, remission, right? Yeah. And then they come on again. So you're in relapse phase. But during those two times, your disease is not getting worse, right? It's not progressing. Right. That's the um, relapsing type of multiple sclerosis. The other kind is primary progressive. And they used to call that one... Um, progressive relapsing? Yeah. And they kind of folded all those together. But the one that survived was primary progressive. And that's basically like you are your disease is getting worse pretty much constantly. And it might be happening fast. It might be happening slowly. But you have a, a disease progression that can be noted by the the people in charge of taking care with you, care of you, but then during that you may have small periods uh, where you don't have symptoms, so you've got a remission, or you have periods where they come on really strong and it gets really acute, so you have a relapse. But during this time, during like say a year or five years or ten years, your MS is getting worse, you know, by the year. Yeah, which that was what Billy had. Gotcha. That's what it, yeah, that's what it sounds like. I, I, I have the impression that, um, the, the, any kind of progressive type of, of multiple sclerosis is the, the worst of the, the two because yeah. you're, you're, you have it like basically all the time and it's getting worse as it goes along. Yeah. And his would come together, his would come in fits and starts for the first period of years. Um, and it was that classic thing, I think, where his flare ups would, be like not so bad at one point and then mm-hmm. kind of calm down mm-hmm. and then be really bad and then calm down. But the whole time there was a progressive thing going on to where he was, he was obviously worst case scenario. Um, like couldn't walk in a wheelchair, couldn't talk. Um, man, that poor guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, the muscle spasticity is a big, um, hallmark of, of kind of the worst kinds. And that's when you're, um, you know, your body's just not communicating anymore. Like, well, no, that myelin sheath is exposed, and so the the um, electrical impulses are going haywire. So the muscles they're commanding are going haywire too. Yeah. So he he like I said he walked with a cane for a little while, but eventually like just had to go. You know, lost tons of weight. Eventually ended up in a wheelchair, and was his body was almost constantly in a state of uh, muscle tension. You know, the ironic part about that is it sounds like his immune system was super healthy, which is how it was able to stage those massive attacks on on his poor myelin sheaths. Maybe. You know? Yeah. Because you'd think if you had a weakish immune system, your MS wouldn't be quite as bad. Yeah, I guess you're never thought about that. Yeah, it's really interesting, and it's super cruel to see... Um like the body, like I said, the body turn on itself like that because Billy was very athletic and he was a good singer and like it took away his ability to, to do all this stuff. Um, and it, it got so bad where he would, um, and it mentions it in this article about like even when you're eating, you have to be really careful because you can choke on your tongue yeah. or choke on food. Um, when he would get cracked up and laugh at us, it would like, it would be, you know, it would be good for him, but it would also be a little bit scary because he would, his laugh would get out of control such to where you had to worry about if, you know, he had taken a sip of water or something, right. you could choke on it. Yeah. Apparently that's one of the uh, ways that people do die from complications of MS is choking because they have swallowing problems. Yeah. That was definitely, uh, I mean, I don't remember the exact, like, literal cause of death at the end, but, um, you know, it just ravaged his body basically. 
So the other ones I saw were that your lung function due yeah. to weakened muscle activity is one of the other main ways. Um, it, uh, like an infection from a sore due to immobility uh-huh. can, if not treated correctly, those things can lead to say like a blood infection and you can die from sepsis. And then sadly, suicide is another leading cause of death among people who have MS. Yeah. Something like 6% to 14% of people with MS commit suicide. And one of the reasons why that's much higher than the population at large yeah. um, is because one of the comorbidities of multiple sclerosis is depression. Yeah, for sure. And it's apparently, from what I saw in my research, one of those things that's not w- widely recognized and therefore not widely treated enough as far as MS goes, that it's a, it's apparently a big problem with it. And it can come from just being depressed that you have MS. Cause again, this strikes you in, in the prime of your life. So you think about all the stuff you're missing out on because you have debilitating MS or just the, um, the myelin sheath coating regions of your brain. If you get le- lesions in the parts of your brain that regulate your mood, yeah. you can become um, the physiology of your brain can lead to depression because of the changes there. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it does originate in the central nervous system, but um, it can, in some cases, affect like your memory, uh, your speech, your problem solving, and your higher brain function. I think it's, it says in here like five, five to ten percent have severe impairment of higher brain function. So, mm-hmm. yeah, of course, depression is going to go along with that, you know. So we should we should say that for the most part it's from what I saw the vast majority of patients with multiple sclerosis don't die from it. Yes. They don't suffer major cognitive impairment as a result of it. And um a lot of them don't even exhibit major symptoms for the most part. That, yeah, I don't want to freak people out with yeah. Billy's story cuz he had the worst case scenario. Right. But and, and but a diagnosis is, doesn't mean you're headed toward that. No, no. I just wanted to make sure that we were saying that. So yeah. We, you know, I don't want to scare anybody, but we got to get information out there, right? Because I mean, if there's one thing that would be really great if we could do with this episode is if there's somebody out there right now who is starting to have migraines or tingling in their arm, that they'll go to the doctor and catch it early. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. So let's talk about treatment and stuff after a break, huh? Yes. Okay. All right. One of the things you can do once you are diagnosed is get on drugs. Um, they've come you, a long you way. You to do drugs. <laughs> That's right. Uh, the drugs that they use uh, to help treat MS have come a long way over the years. Uh, they're called disease-modifying agents. And, um, you know, they don't cure anything, but what they're trying to do is slow the progression or mm-hmm. uh, alter or suppress that immune system in such a way that it helps. Yeah, yeah, and um, there's a lot of ways out there to actually treat the symptoms that are drug-based and non-drug-based, but those disease-modifying agents are the ones that actually alter the course of the multiple sclerosis. But, like you said, they don't actually cure it. Although it is possible that there is a cure for it out right now, but it's new enough. It, it, it was just started in the late 90s, and it's so nut so radical um, 
that it just hasn't been proven as a cure, but it's kind of looking like it might be. Yeah, should we go ahead and talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So it's based on stem cells. Yeah, I mean, it's basically what they're doing is completely replacing your immune system. Right. It's nuts. So back in the 90s, two doctors from Ottawa. Um, what province is Ottawa in? Do you remember? The best Ontario? <laughs> well, let's just say Ottawa, Canada, like Atlanta, USA. <laughs> right. Uh, these doctors, Mark Friedman and Henry Atkins, they had this idea of basically re- reducing your immune system to nothing so that when they managed to keep you alive, if they managed to keep you alive, when they restarted your immune system again by reintroducing some of your stem cells, your um, hemiopoetic, I want to say, yeah, y- stem cells. Yeah, your own. Right. Um, that it would build your immune system up again, and then they could watch the immune system restart MS, and they'd be able to watch the disease progression from square one. But as one of them said in an interview, they failed miserably. But it's great that they did, because what they found was that when they devastated the immune system, brought it to zero, wiped it out, and then reintroduced your blood stem cells to the patient again, the MS didn't come back in most of the people they tried this on. Yeah, 86% remained relapse-free for three years, after three years, and counting. And uh, almost 91% showed no sign of progression of the disease. Yeah. Which is so, remarkable. And then in that original, I think, 1999 um, study that uh, Friedman and Atkins carried out, something like 23 of the 24, um, the disease was stopped in its tracks. And apparently these people had like a pretty bad bad cases of ms this wasn't it wasn't a lightweight case of ms yeah there's something called the expanded disability status scale which Mm -hmm. basically kind of ranks how bad they are in terms of walking dexterity cognition Mm -hmm. and they all had to rate between a three and a 5.5 on that scale which is you know fairly severe right and so some people uh, for 23 out of the 24 in the original study and i think like you said 67 percent in later studies um the disease just stopped. It did not get any worse, even though these were progressive cases of MS. And in something like six of the 24, they actually, their, their disease was walked back. So like the permanent damage, apparently there's a rule of thumb among people with multiple sclerosis or doctors that if you have a symptom that doesn't get better or go away after a year, you can consider it permanent damage. Yeah. That permanent damage was actually reversed in six of the 24 patients by this incredibly radical procedure that seems to work. Yeah. Like the, they, one of the doctors was like, no one likes using the C word. And he was like, but I'm going to go ahead and say it like these people are cured. Yeah. Some of these people have been in remission for 14 years. And for all intents and purposes, that's that's cured. Yeah. It's amazing. It is. It's pretty great. But again, it's also a very, very risky procedure. Sure. Like what they're using in, um, in I think, the most current incarnation, I think it's called HALT MS is the process. But it's based on those Ottawa doctors' discovery that you use five different kinds of chemotherapy to kill to, your immune system to kill your immune system man and so obviously you have to be kept in isolation and everyone has to wear a crazy biohazard suit around you and they have you on antimicrobials and it kills everything um and they are, are trying to fight off any infection and 
anyone who's ever stayed in a hospital knows the best place to get an infection yeah. is a hospital. So it's extraordinarily dangerous. But if you can survive, and if you have like a, pr- a pretty bad case of MS, I'm guessing you'd be willing to try this. Um, it, it, it can cure you. Yeah, Billy would have tried this in a second. I guarantee it. Yeah. Uh, they had 24 volunteers initially uh, between 2006 and 2010 for the first study, I think. Oh, no, no, this one was um, this was in Denver. So I guess are they doing follow-up research? Yeah, this is a different. So the the one that you're talking about, that's the HALT study. Right. Um, I'm not sure exactly what uh, Friedman and Atkins called their technique, but I, as far as I know, they're the pioneers of wiping out your immune system and then replacing it to get rid of MS. Yeah, so I think I might have mixed together some of the stats for these two studies, but let's just say they're both very promising. Yeah. Um, and, you know, who knows, like, I don't, I don't know the procedure. I know we've talked about doing shows on uh, medical testing and stuff and the procedure, like, the stepping stones from here to, like, all right, now when is this going to be a thing? Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, it's so kind of dangerous and fraught with complications. I don't know if they, this can be super widespread, you know? I, I, from what I'm seeing in the research, though, it it has such positive uh, backing. I think yeah. kind of across the spectrum that it's. I think people are gung ho about it. Like people should be able to decide if they want to take that risk. Like Billy was certainly in a position where he's like, "It's not going to get any worse for me." You know? Right. Yeah. Like I'm willing to take this chance and maybe die. Right. Uh, is basically, I guess, what these volunteers are saying to make my life better. Sure. Yeah, I, I, I think one of the things that's probably staying in most people like that's way is the costs associated because I, I supposedly there's really just stupid loopholes that you have that regarding, um, stem cell therapies. Oh, right. Of course. Like, like the article I sent you, um, talked about a guy named Dave Bexfield. Uh-huh. And he was um, accepted to the study, willing to take the risks. And um, his insurance company was like, yeah, that's great. It's a stem cell um, study, but we only cover stem cells that are that come from donors. And this study r- has stem cells that come from you. Yeah. So you're going to have to pay the $200,000 yourself. And he did. This guy got together. He scraped together like hundred and eighty-six grand. Which is what it costs to, to carry out this trial for him specifically. And, um, I guess afterward he went after his insurance company and got not only that money back, but like another $200,000 or something in interest. Wow. And he's cured. So boom. I should say, and he's seaworded. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, there are, um, some other diseases that are sort of like MS and there is debate in the medical community whether or not they want to actually classify them. Um, there's something called clinically isolated syndrome, mm-hmm. uh, which means you can have an attack or a, a flare up or an episode, um, from this demyelinization, but it's just like one lesion and sometimes you might develop MS, but not always. Sometimes it's just CID. Yeah. I thought that was weird, and it, to me, it just kind of suggests how incomplete an understanding science has of MS. Well, yeah, and if, like I said, they, some people say, well, you shouldn't even call this MS, and some people say, no, it's like maybe the mildest form you can get. Right. Uh, what else? There's something called uh, Marburg MS, 
Schilder's diffuse sclerosis, mm-hmm. uh, Balo concentric sclerosis, and Devick's disease uh, that are all sort of in that um, range of what's called idiopathic inflammatory demyelinating diseases, IIDDs. Yeah. And children can get it too, even though it's pretty rare. Yeah, 8,000 cases in the U.S. And remember, there's like 400,000 of MS. But of pediatric multiple sclerosis, um, there's 8,000 of them, which is, I mean, talk about prime of life disease. Yeah, and I think it's even harder to diagnose uh, in kids because that's certainly not something they're looking for. Right, and we're like the drugs that they're using. It's it's like what we don't know what effects they're going to have on kids. You know, is the yeah. cure worse than the disease? Right, because there's you know we said that there's some disease altering drugs. There's a new one called Ocrevus that is um, pending approval from the FDA, but looks like it's going to go through, which is I think the first uh, disease modifying agent that is shown to treat both progressive and relapsing forms of multiple sclerosis um and it goes after the immune system i think it tries to suppress a, your b cells in the immune system oh, wow. um so there's there's plenty of treatments that go after the disease but there's also a lot of treatments that treat symptoms right and um one of the ones that are used are antidepressants and anticonvulsants yeah and so there's a lot of questions like should we be giving those to kids even though they have MS? Right. What's the long-term effect of giving antidepressants to a child whose brain chemistry is still in the beginning stages of development? Yeah, I mean, drugs can be wonderful, but there there's not a drug you can take that doesn't have some sort of other effect. Sure. And um, the benefits outweighing the side effects, like you got to take all this into consideration for anything. Yeah. You know? One of the other things I saw about antidepressants, Chuck, was um, they have figured out that they can use it to treat chronic pain. And one of the outcroppings from MS, so again, MS is like your body going haywire in really unique ways for each person with multiple sclerosis. Yeah. Um, so it, it kind of, in a way, provides researchers ways to, whenever the body does something and it's not supposed to, it's a great place for researchers to go study the normal processes of the body. And one of the things they figured out is that in treating chronic pain with multiple sclerosis, um, you can use antidepressants. And the reason why is because apparently chronic pain and depression use a lot of the same neural pathways and create a lot of the same changes to the plasticity of the brain huh. as one another. Interesting. And that chronic pain and depression may be in a lot of ways more related, at least neurologically, right. than chronic pain and acute pain, which seem to be kind of different animals. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. I think so, too. Yeah. You got anything else? Uh, yeah, you know, I think I would just advise anyone, and it's not just MS, but like if you got a, I wasn't the friend to Billy that I should have been toward the end, and it's fraught with regret. Uh, and part of that is because life gets in the way, uh, and part of it is just, you know, it's not the easiest thing to face as a friend. And uh, I think what I did was I let myself off the hook too easily for that stuff, which I feel really crappy about now. Oh, yeah. Like, try to overcome that. 
if you have something like this going on. That's good advice, man. That's what I will say. I swore I wasn't going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Are you misting? Yeah, it's it's it was very hard, and I wasn't the friend I should have been. And my friend Eddie was great and stood by Billy. And uh, uh, I went and saw him at the end in the hospital, but it was you know I had a lot of regret about the final years and not going to see him like yeah. I should have. And it's understandable, man. Yeah, I think you just did some sort of absolution, though. Well, we'll see. Well, if you want to know more about multiple sclerosis, you could type those words into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, and it will bring up this article. Um, and since I said that, and Chuck is misting, it's time for listener mail. <laughs> that means it's Wednesday. Uh, this is on empathy a little bit, too. Um, hey, guys, listening to empathy right now, I had to pause to say thank you. Uh, when you were talking about the study relating to autism and alexithemia, uh, you listed four groups studied as individuals with autism and alexithemia, individuals with autism uh, without alexithemia, individuals with alexithemia but not autism, and then people who didn't have either one. Uh, growing up as a sister of a guy with autism, I can tell you how many times I've heard people describe individuals without autism as normal people. Uh, it's such a lazy way to describe a group who doesn't exhibit just one of a multitude of other characteristics. And frankly, it's demeaning and rude. So thank you for not being those guys. Uh, you're always careful in your wording, so I shouldn't be surprised. But having 30 years plus experience hearing normal people conditioned me to brace myself when you started the list. Inclusive language for the win. Keep up the great work. Uh, that is from Megan uh, Isgen in Indianapolis. And she said, P.S., uh, Indianapolis is no Seattle, but maybe come to the Circle City sometime. <laughs> oh, nice upspeak at the end. Uh, and we, I think we have been batting around the idea of an Indianapolis show. So uh, It's possible. Yeah, hopefully that'll happen. Thanks a lot, Megan. That was very nice of you. Uh, we appreciate the kudos. Um, and if you want to get in touch with us like Megan and tell us to come to your city, you can tweet to us. We're at SYSK Podcast or Josh Um Clark. Uh, you can hang out with us on facebook.com slash stuff you should know or facebook.com slash Charles W. Chuck Bryant. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. <laughs>